our Bible reading today is Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 41. Now when, when they heard this, they were, they were cut to heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, for of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God called to himself. And with many other words bore witness, and continued to exalt them, saying, Save yourself from the crooked generation. For those who received this word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. Well, once again, a very, very warm welcome to you. If you are new to our church this morning, my name is Martin. I'm one of the ministers here at Christ Church Midrand. We really are delighted that you could join us this morning. Royden was talking about gospel partnerships. I'm just going to ask the team from Mozambique just to stand for one moment. We'll give them a hand in just a moment. Let me just explain. Please stand our team from Mozambique, Innocentio, Anasandra, Alessandria, Hannah, Fernando, Egidio, Monica, Stephen. Uh, as you know, we have been working together with Innocentio in growing uh, the church reach Mozambique uh, for a number of years. And Innocentia and the team are going to spend two years here in Johannesburg. They're going to be studying at the Johannesburg Bible College. And the idea is that they imbibe the DNA and the culture. And then in 2024, our hope and prayer, and you can pray with us, is to start Seminario Maputo, uh, Maputo Bible College. And uh, they're going to be part of our church, so you may want to welcome them. If you want to learn Portuguese, you need to ask them over for lunch on a Sunday, and you will get a free lesson in Portuguese. So a very warm welcome. They're going to be part of our church family the next two years. They'll be at Johannesburg Bible College, and the plan is to keep growing the church in Mozambique. Let's give them a big hand of welcome. Thank you. Well, we turning to the passage that was read to us, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 41. Uh, this morning is going to be a little bit of a Bible study, so you need to stay with me, and it's going to be a great, great help to me if you do have your Bibles, either on your tablet, your cell phone, perhaps a Bible. There are Bibles at the back. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 2 and a few verses in John 14 and 15, so do try and have your Bibles open so that we can study God's Word together. But let me pray first as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, your word says that the Bible, the word of God, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, as Kate prayed earlier, we do need to confess that in this past week we have lurked in the shadows and some of us have fallen into the darkness. And so we do pray that your word and your spirit may indeed bring light to that darkness and dispel the darkness 
and draw us to yourself. Lord, that is a supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you will work amongst us for Christ's sake. Amen. Certain chapters in the Bible are absolutely pivotal in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of salvation history. In the Old Testament, it would most certainly be Genesis 1 and 2. In the New Testament, it would most certainly be Acts chapter 1 and 2. In fact, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about creation. Acts 1 and 2 tells us about the new creation. And then, interestingly enough, Revelation 21 and 22 tell us about the new heaven and the new earth. So these are pivotal chapters, and that's why we as a church have been studying these two chapters in the book of Acts these last couple of weeks, and this morning, of course, chapter 2, verse 37 to 41. In Acts chapter 1, you will remember, when we looked at Acts chapter 1, there were the 40 days before the resurrec- after the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ when Jesus was teaching his disciples. We then have in Acts chapter 1 the ascension of Christ, the bodily ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. We have the choosing of a replacement for Judas so that there would be 12 disciples. And you remember the New Testament teaches us that the 12 disciples form the new Israel. They take over from the 12 tribes of Israel so that God's purposes are no longer accomplished through the nation-state of Israel. No, they are accomplished through the new Israel, which is the church, those who are devoted to the apostolic teaching of the 12 and of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, last week, the week before, we looked at Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost was a Jewish festival, It was a harvest festival. Pente means 50. So 50 days after the Passover, you have Pentecost. And at Pentecost, God poured out his Holy Spirit onto his people, onto the church, onto the first 120 disciples. And then at the end of chapter 2, you remember that 3,000 were saved. Let me try and draw that here on the whiteboard. You've seen this before, but it's so important that we understand what uh, salvation history is, that we understand a picture, a story of history and of the Bible. So let me quickly show you. Here we have, here we have creation, and we find that in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we have the history of, we have the history of Israel. We then have the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the Pentecost of Christ. And then we are waiting, after the Pentecost of Christ, the very next thing that will happen is the return of Christ. So we are waiting for that. And we read about the death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost of Christ in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And then we read in Revelation 21 and 22 we read about the new heaven and the new earth. So that is, a, that is a brief, quick overview of history. That is our history. That is the history of the Bible. That is your history. That's my history. And we are living over here. This is where we are living. We are not living there. That's unless you've died since I started preaching, which is quite possible. <laughs> 
which is quite possible. Okay, we are living here, guys. We are living in a place where there's still sin, there's still suffering, there's still disease, there's still death, there's still struggle. We are waiting. All we are waiting for, we live after the death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost of Christ. We are waiting for the return of Christ. And when he returns, we will be, we will be joined with him face to face in the new heaven and the new earth. So, my dear friends, that is our history. That is our family tree. That is where we come from, and that is where we are going. So you and I may have a little family tree. You may be very proud of your family family tree. Well, God bless you. That's very nice. But actually, if you're a Christian, this is our family tree. This is our history. This is our future. So what we are looking at now, here you have these two critical chapters, creation and the fall. That is the fall. Here we have the death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost of Jesus. Critical chapters. And we are waiting for the return of Christ. And we read about the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. So now you understand where we are in church history, where we are in salvation history. We can place ourselves as to where we are at this moment and what we are reading about here in Acts 1 and Acts 2. Remember from two weeks back, I mentioned that Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, is a reversal of Babel. So in Babel, Genesis chapter 11, you can read about that later on. We have the human race trying to usurp the place of God, trying to take over the throne of God, trying to reach up into heaven and be God themselves. And God, in judgment, curses them. And at Babel, the nations are scattered, and the language is confused. And instead of speaking one language, they speak many languages. That was the curse of God. That was the judgment of God. As Christ comes to rescue us, he reverses that judgment. And the first step of reversal is here in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where after the death and resurrection and ascension and Pentecost of Christ, God now gathers his people together. After scattering them, he gathers them. And together they now praise God with one gospel. Though they have different languages, they have one gospel. So there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a reversal of what we saw in Babel. And of course... We will see in Revelation chapter 7 that the, that the culmination is when all nations, all races, will be together praising God and voicing in one voice that he is king, that he is Lord, that the Lamb has been slain. And so we worship and fall before him. So this is what's happening at Pentecost. The result, you'll notice, chapter 2, verse 12, is that all were amazed and perplexed, saying, what does this mean? And so last week, David unpacked the sermon of Peter where he is explaining what it meant, what the meaning was. And this week, we're having a look at chapter 2, verse 31 to 41, as to how people respond to the gospel. And next week, Royden's going to have a look at those last verses, verses 42 to 47, which he'll look at the fruit of the gospel, which is the church. One of the reasons why Acts 2 is so critical 
is that it includes four of the key ingredients to the gospel. And we're going to unpack that this morning. We're going to have a look at gospel events and gospel, gospel witnesses. I'll be reasonably brief on that because David touched on that last week. Thirdly, we'll have a look at gospel promises. And fourthly, gospel conditions. And that gives us a kind of a bird's eye view of the gospel. Gospel events, gospel witnesses, gospel promises, gospel conditions. All stated here in Acts chapter 2. That's why these chapters are so pivotal, and that's why we've been looking at these chapters over the last couple of weeks. Let me just go down one side road and try and answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit, and what does he do? I need to do that because there's so much misunderstanding, so much confusion about the Holy Spirit. Let me touch on a couple, just a couple of brief concepts, key concepts, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, the first thing we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. So many people think of the Holy Spirit as some kind of vague force or some power. So you sometimes hear the phrase, let the force be with you. And some people may think, well, that's the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps you watch on TV and you hear fire, fire, fire. Uh, No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a divine person. So quickly have a look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 15. And notice how Jesus, speaking about the Holy Spirit, uses the third person singular, he. He doesn't use the word it. He doesn't talk about a force. No, he talks about a person. Notice John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice that. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say power. He doesn't say force. He doesn't say fire. No, he says he He will be with you. He will be in you. Have a look at at verse 16 again. He talks about another helper. So that, that phrase means another helper like me. Another helper like Jesus. Jesus was a person. Jesus was a divine person. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 26. Chapter 15, just over the page, 15 verse 26. But when the helper comes, or the counselor comes, the Greek word is paraclete, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So notice there, the Father sends the Spirit, the Son sends the Spirit, they both send the Spirit, And then the Spirit comes and he bears witness about Jesus. That means he's a person. He has certain actions. He has a mission, which is distinct from the Father and the Son. That's why the Bible teaches so clearly we have one God. Not three gods, one God made up of three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. They are all God, but they have different roles. They have different functions. Chapter 16, verse 7 and 8. Chapter 16, verse 7 and 8. 
and we'll pick up some of the personality of the Holy Spirit. It says there, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So notice there, the Holy Spirit is a person. He has personality. He has a role. He has functions. He is able to communicate. He is able to convict us. So when you become a Christian, so if you are a Christian, if you've been born again, the Holy Spirit has come to live within you. And you know he is within you. And one of the ways you know that he is within you is that when you sin, and sadly we do sin, and when you fall, and when you fail, and when you blow it, and sadly we do those things, what happens? The Holy Spirit convicts you. Isn't that what happens? The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. Previously, before you were a Christian, you weren't worried about that. Now the Holy Spirit convicts you. He's a person. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is a person with emotions. Extraordinary. He's a divine person, and he can be hurt, and he can be grieved. So before you were a Christian, you could curse, you could use the Lord's name in vain, you could lie, you could swear, didn't worry you. Now the Holy Spirit lives within you. And when you do those things, sadly, it grieves you. It pains you. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit within you, who's convicting you of sin. Just very quickly, what does the Holy Spirit do? Some think that the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost. No, it was the start of the age of the Spirit. It was Jesus pouring out his Spirit in a unique way, after his ascension, but the Holy Spirit, who is God, has been in existence for all eternity. So it's no surprise that we find the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 1. Remember Genesis chapter 1. We actually have all three persons of the Trinity in the first three verses of Genesis 1. You may have read many years ago Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. He's a great fiction author, but it is fiction. In that book, he tells us that the church discovered the Trinity around about 300 A.D. Well, God bless Dan Brown, but that's not true. The Holy Spirit has been active since Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God, God the Father. Verse 2, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. The instrument of creation was the word of God. And we are later told in John chapter 1 verse 14 that the word became flesh. So it's extraordinary. In those first three verses of Genesis 1, we are introduced to all three persons of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit, who existed before creation, is instrumental in creation. Paul tells us, secondly, that, that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in giving us the Scriptures, the Bible, giving us revelation. 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's the breath of God, the Spirit of God, that breathed upon men so that they may speak the Word of God which we have in the Bible. Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit was active in creation. The Holy Spirit was active in revelation. We uh, learned a couple of weeks ago that the Holy Spirit is active in our conversion. Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that causes you to be born again. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates you. The last thing I'll mention in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit, there are many other things that he's been involved in, but it brings us back to Acts chapter 2, is that ironically, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to Jesus. Did you notice that? Turn back to John 15, verse 26. Notice what Jesus says about the role of the Holy Spirit. He says there, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, notice, he will bear witness about himself. No, he will bear witness about me. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to focus on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit almost has a spotlight ministry. Let me explain that. If you've ever gone to the union buildings at night, they are magnificent. They are beautiful because they are lit up. They are spotlights that light up these magnificent buildings designed by Sir Herbert Baker. But what we don't notice is the spotlight. We notice the building. So Jesus tells us, John chapter 15, verse 26, one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit when it comes to Jesus is to spotlight not himself, but to spotlight Jesus. So that's what we find in Acts chapter 2. We have this Pentecost, this extraordinary work of God. It is a massive event in salvation history where Jesus, who has died, who has raised, who has ascended into heaven, sends down his Holy Spirit to usher in the age of his Spirit. And then the rest of the chapter focuses on Jesus. It's sort of ironic. I mean, if I was writing Acts chapter 2, I wouldn't have written it like that. I would have thought, well, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. Peter talks about Jesus. So Acts chapter 2 is Christological. It points us to Christ. Interesting, there are 19 sermons or talks in the book of Acts. And they're all Christological. They all focus on Jesus, on what he did and what he said but especially his death and his resurrection, his ascension. They're Christological, which is precisely what Jesus told his disciples here in John 15, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bear witness about me. Which means that a church that focuses more on the Holy Spirit than on Jesus is getting it wrong. We, we, are, we are totally dependent upon the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We are totally upon, dependent upon the Holy Spirit converting us, convicting us, leading us, guiding us. But our primary focus as God's people, as we see in the sermons in the book of Acts, should be on Jesus. So a church that spends almost all its time focusing on the Holy Spirit in some way or the other, is distorting or misunderstanding what the purpose of the Spirit is. 
The purpose of the Spirit is to point us to Christ, which is precisely what we have here in Acts chapter 2. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 2, those four, those four key ingredients to the gospel. And the first two David dealt with last week, so I'm just going to touch on them. We're looking at gospel events, gospel witnesses, gospel promises, and gospel conditions. First of all, gospel events. So notice, back to Acts chapter 2. You with me? Acts chapter 2? Yes? Good. You haven't fallen asleep. You haven't died. Good. That's great. Very pleased about that. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter talks about the life and ministry of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Peter is explaining the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the miracles of Christ. And then verse 23 and 24, he talks about the death and resurrection of Christ. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I don't think Peter would ever be a good diplomat. He's quite straight, he's quite in your face. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice verse 33, he talks about gospel events, he talks about the ascension of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the Pentecost of Christ. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what is Peter doing? He's pointing us to gospel events, critical, a critical part of salvation history. In actual fact, the, all of the Old Testament is pointing towards that. Let me just say again, as I've often said before, the Christian faith is based upon objective history. It's not based upon our feelings or our experiences. Our feelings and experiences are important. They are personal. They are ours. But the truthfulness of the Christian faith is not based upon our feelings or emotions. It's based on something outside of ourselves. So the truthfulness of the Christian faith is not subjective. The truthfulness of the Christian faith is objective. It's based on the historical creation, Genesis 1 and 2. It's based upon the historical work of Christ, Acts 1 and 2. It's based upon the future historical truth of his return and the new heaven and the new earth. Peter is not saying this is true for me, but it may not be true for you. He's not saying that. Gospel events is what happened, whether you believe it or not. It happened. It happened objectively. It happened historically. So 1994, we remember, it's good to remember today, Human Rights Day, we, we, we remember our first democratic president was Mr. Nelson Mandela. Now, you may choose not to believe that. All right? Everybody has the right to be stupid. <laughs> remember that. Everyone, everyone has the right to be stupid. <laughs> Uh, you may choose not to believe that, but the, but the truthfulness doesn't depend on your belief. Whether you believe it or not is quite irrelevant, actually. It happened. 
So it is with the death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost of Christ. Whether you believe it or not, it happened. So in a sense, in one sense, your belief in it is quite irrelevant. It happened. It's objectively true. So that is why the gospel is based in gospel events. Secondly, there are gospel witnesses, which David looked at last week, where the apostles didn't proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ in a vacuum. No, they, they proclaimed it in the context of witnesses. So it's almost as if Acts chapter 2, the, the, the sermon of Peter is like a, a law court where the evidence has been presented and then witnesses are called out to testify to the truthfulness of the evidence. And so what did, what did Peter do? He pointed to two witnesses. One is the Old Testament prophets. That was the first witness to the gospel events. So remember verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16, he quotes a prophecy from Joel 2. Remember verse 25, he quotes a prophecy of David from Psalm 16. Verse 34, he quotes a prophecy from David, again, from Psalm 110. And by the way, there are over 300 prophecies, messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, all coming true in the person of Jesus. Many of them written seven, eight, nine, a thousand years before the birth of Christ. What mathematical chance do you think there is that 300 prophecies written by different people over three, two, three hundred years would come true in one person called Jesus? Peter is saying, here's a witness, the Old Testament prophets. The second witness, Peter says, are the apostles, chapter 2, verse 32. Notice, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Same thing, chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Chapter 5, verse 32, same thing. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Chapter 10, verse 39, and so on. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that there were 500 men who at the same time saw the resurrected Christ. And some of them are still alive, so go and ask them. So the new creation, salvation history, has gospel events, and they are gospel witnesses. It's a court of law. Peter says, let me call on the witnesses, the Old Testament prophets, the present-day apostles who were there, who saw the risen Jesus. Just two comments before we look at the third principle. The one is that as you read this sermon and the other 19 sermons in the book of Acts, which, remember, is Church History 101, After you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you say, what happened then? Well, the answer is the book of Acts. When you read the epistles, the letters of Paul and Peter and John, you say, where did these churches come from? Well, you go back to Acts, Church History 101. That's where they came from. And here we are told that the Christian faith is based upon gospel events and gospel witnesses. Occasionally, we don't have DSTV, but sometimes when we're visiting friends or we're on holiday, occasionally I will watch Christian channels on DSTV. My suggestion is don't. (laughs) 
What strikes me almost every time is that the content of the sermons and the talks are primarily, not exclusively, but primarily about me. They are egotistic. They are egocentric. There's very little about the person of God, the nature of God, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. It's mainly about how God can serve me. That's mainly what it's about, how God can improve my self-image, how God can improve my motivational um, uh, juices, um, how God can give me health, how God can give me wealth, how God can solve this problem or that problem in my life. Now, it's true that God may bless us in different ways, and when he does, we are thankful. But that's not why Jesus came. That's not the gospel. That's not the guts of the gospel. The guts of the gospel is the gospel events, the gospel testimonies, the gospel promises, the gospel conditions. The focus is Christ, who he is and what he's done and how we can serve him. So the focus is almost the wrong way around, how God can serve us. Well, my dear friends, that's not the Bible. That's not the gospel. That's not the Christian faith. No, it's how we serve him because he's God. We are not God which means that many of those TV channels are distorted. They give us a distorted picture of Christianity. And when people only look at that and say, that's Christianity, it's a distorted Christianity. It's half the truth, or a quarter of the truth. Second comment is just that we are not at liberty to define our own Jesus. You know how people say, I like to think of Jesus like this, I like to think of Jesus like that, my God wouldn't do X, Y, Z. My dear friends, it's not for us to try and define God. It's for God to define us. He's not, he's, not, he's not a God of our making. So through the ages, there's been caricatures of Jesus. There's been a revolutionary Jesus. There's been a socialist Jesus. There's been a communist Jesus. You have a new age Jesus. Oprah talks about the spirit of Christ. We now, I think, have a capitalist Jesus where he's there to make us wealthy. Best of all is Jesus made in my own image. Jesus loves what I love. Jesus hates what I hate. A kind of a magnified version of ourselves. Well, according to Peter in the book of Acts, there's no such thing as a domesticated Jesus. No, there's an objective, historical Jesus who can still act in your life today by his spirit. He's not an amplified version of ourselves. No, if you want to know who the Jesus, who the real Jesus is, don't look inside yourself. Don't look onto DSTV. No, search the scriptures and you'll find the real Jesus as he walks off the pages of the Gospels. Number three, gospel events, gospel witnesses, gospel promises, verse 38 and 39. Back to Acts chapter 2, 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel is not only good news. It's not only good news because of what Jesus did, but what Jesus offers. He offers two things, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, promised us that when the Messiah comes, that's precisely what he will do. He will sprinkle you clean, and he will put his spirit within you. 
Remember in John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus. He says, behold the Lamb of God, who does two things. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And secondly, behold the Lamb of God, who baptizes with the Spirit. And that's exactly what we find in verse 38. Those who repent, those who believe, those who are baptized will receive two things, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is not only, notice verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, both geographically and in time. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So it's not only in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. No, it's for all ages, all countries, all races. It's for all who are far off, meaning Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. All races, both Jew and Gentile, male and female. To everyone whom the Lord, notice there the end of verse 39, whom the Lord calls. Those he calls, he converts. And notice verse 41, there were 3,000 souls added to the church. The first revival in church history happened here at the end of Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people at the same time came to faith in Christ. But notice there, it's those whom the Lord calls, the end of verse 39. You're a Christian, my dear friends. If you're a Christian, it's not because you are more clever than other people. It's not because you are more spiritual than other people. It's not because you are more worthy than other people. No, you, you're a Christian because God called you, and then God converted you, and then God forgave your sins, and God gave you his spirit. It's a work of God. That's why when we meet and we thank God, when we sing and praise God. We don't say, Lord, thank you for your part in saving me, the 75% that you did in saving me. No, we all know it's the Lord who saved us, 100%. He calls us, he converts us, he forgives us, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you are born again. Now, the Bible uses different terms, being born again, being regenerated, being converted, being saved. It's all the same thing. It's where God forgives you and cleanses you. And what an unimaginable gift is forgiveness. You know, I'm so thankful the Lord has taken out of my mind most of my sins. But if we were to list our sins and to write them down, how embarrassing we would be ashamed, wouldn't we? The things we've done, the things we've said, the things we've thought. If we were to list them, we would hope and pray that no one ever sees that list. Burn it. And that's what Jesus has done. He's burnt it for us. We've forgiven. And then he places his spirit within us to give us freedom to give us joy. Those are some of the great gifts of the gospel. The Lord cleanses us. He washes us. He takes away all that grime, all that garbage, all those things we are so, so embarrassed about. How could I have done that? How could I have said that? I can't believe I said that. The Lord washes it, the Lord cleanses it, and then he places his spirit within us. 
Those are the wonderful gospel promises. So the gospel is not only historical, it is historical, but it's also experiential. As God the Holy Spirit invades my life. You're a Christian because God gatecrashed your life. God invaded your life. You thought you were seeking after God. No, it's God the Holy Spirit who was seeking after you, who invaded your life, who gatecrashed your life, who turned you around. And if you're not a Christian and say, well, how do I become a Christian? You need to say, God, will you do the work? Because I can't do it myself. God calls us. God converts us. Lastly, let's notice gospel conditions. Again, verse 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Look at that phrase, crooked generation. Universalism, it's a technical term, it's a theological term, is the belief that everyone in the end will be okay. Everyone in the end will be saved. Everyone in the end will go to heaven. That is universalism, as long as you are sincere and as long as you do your best. No, 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 says Peter, that's not the gospel. Verse 40, you are to separate yourself You are to save yourself from this crooked generation. So here we have the embryonic root of what Royden is going to have a look at next week, the gospel community, the Christ community, the Christ generation. We are to separate ourselves from this crooked generation and become a Christ-like generation. But there are two conditions and only two, and there's a public implication Peter says there, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Baptism, whether it's parents, Christian parents, promising to bring up their children in a Christian gospel-centered home, or whether it's adults being baptized, is a public demonstration. It's an outward demonstration of an inward work of God. It's a public statement, and if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. So you need to speak to Rafa afterwards. But it will always be a public acknowledgement to God, to God's people, to the world, that you are under new management. How does that new management happen? Verse 38, repentance. And verse 44, faith. They're two sides of the same coin. Repentance means that I'm walking this way. I'm living my own life in my own way. I have my own hopes, my own dreams, my own search for happiness. I'm autonomous. I'm independent. I live under my own authority. Repentance is when I turn from that and I now live under the authority of Christ. I'm no longer autonomous. I'm no longer independent. I'm no longer self-sufficient. I'm no longer searching after my own dreams. No, I submit to him as king. The Christian life is a life of repentance and faith, where I realize every day, I am not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Repentance is a recognition of that fact. I'm not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And now I'm going to live in the light of that. So becoming a Christian is turning 
in repentance, you turn from being, in, from, from being independent, autonomous, living your own life in your own way, defining your own rules, your own worldview, and turning and putting your faith in Christ, and living by his authority and his word. You're under new management. Let me close with a gospel response. Notice verse 36 and 37. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? Notice there verse 36. It's not only the house of Israel who crucified the Lord and Christ of the universe. It's the house of all ages. It's the house of all nations. It's the house of all generations. It's you and me. We are all responsible. We all crucified him. Remember that old spiritual that said, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer is yes, we were. And not just as spectators, as guilty participants. We put him on the cross. The Scottish hymn writer wrote, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree." I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. How true that is. You put him there. I put him there. Martin Luther said, we all carry the nails from the cross in our pockets. What must we do? You need to take a step. You need to cross a line. You need to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I crucified you. Will you invade my life? Will you gatecrash my life and place me under new management? Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You tell God where you are. was I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Father, as we admit our brokenness and our sinfulness, we pray again that you will wash us and cleanse us as you promised whether it's the first time that we ask you to do that or the millionth time, will you cleanse us and wash us anew? And will you once again place your Holy Spirit within us that we may live for you and for your kingdom? Father, work amongst us, deal with us, draw us to yourself. Help us, Lord, that this weekend may not just be another long weekend, but may be a weekend that we do business with God. And we recommit ourselves to live for him. So, Lord, go with us into this week. Help us to serve you and to love you. And will you use us? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.